Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. Climate change. Just how bad is it? Former Vice President Al Gore on the state of the planet. This is for real. Were we not to take a hold of it and solve it, 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 the consequences would be too catastrophic to even uh, imagine. He will also weigh in on the state of American politics. From my point of view, the worst of it is that it's producing constant distractions. Will he jump in to fix the mess? Wouldn't it make sense for you to run for president? Also, the week in world affairs. Russia, Venezuela, North Korea. And will America get a new immigration policy? I have a great panel to discuss. Finally, an American red state taking cues from a much derided socialist Scandinavian country. In the prisons of North Dakota, is there a lesson for all of America? I'll explore. But first, here's my take. In 1992, Pennsylvania's governor, Robert Casey, a Democrat dedicated to the working class, asked to speak at the National Convention in New York City. He wanted to propose a pro-life plank for the party platform, mostly as a way of affirming his Catholic beliefs. He fully understood that the motion would be voted down, but the Democratic Party refused to permit him even to air his views, so great was his heresy. In his brief, brilliant forthcoming book, The Once and Future Liberal, Mark Lilla writes, that sent a strong signal to working-class Catholic and evangelical voters that if they did not fall in line on this one issue, they were no longer welcome in the party. I wonder if today the Democrats are making the same mistake on immigration. To be clear, I think that the bill that the Republicans rolled out this week is bad public policy and mean-spirited symbolism. But that's not the issue. Lilla acknowledges that he is in fact a pro-choice absolutist on abortion. But he argues that a national party must build a big tent that accommodates people who dissent from the main party line on a few issues. In Lilla's view, there is a larger crisis within American liberalism. The movement has had two very different visions. The first was Franklin Roosevelt's, a collective national effort to help all Americans participate in the country's economic and political life. Its symbol was two hands shaking, an affirmation of the binding strength of national unity. The more recent liberal project has been centered on identity, affirming not unity but difference, Nurturing and celebrating not national identities, but subnational ones. Women, Hispanics, Native Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans. Lilla notes a recurring image of identity liberalism is that of a prism, refracting a single beam of light into its constituent colors, producing a rainbow. This says it all. Immigration is the perfect issue on which Democrats could demonstrate that they care about national unity and identity, and that they understand the voters for whom this is a core concern. Look at the Democracy Fund's voter survey done in the wake of the 2016 election. If you compare two groups of voters, 
those who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and then Hillary Clinton in 2016, and those who voted for Obama in 2012 and Donald Trump in 2016, the single biggest divergence on policy between those two groups is immigration. In other words, there are many Americans who are otherwise sympathetic to democratic ideas, but on a few key issues, principally immigration, think the party is out of touch. And they are right. Consider the facts. Legal immigration in America has expanded dramatically over the last four decades. In 1970, 4.7% of the American population was foreign-born. Today, it's 13.4%. That's a large shift in a small period of time, and it's natural that it has caused some anxiety. And the anxiety is about more than just jobs. In his 2004 book, Who Are We?, the Harvard scholar Samuel Huntington asserted that America had more than just a founding ideology. It had a culture, one that had shaped it powerfully. Would America be the America it is today if in the 17th and 18th centuries it had been settled not by British Protestants, but by French, Spanish, or Portuguese Catholics, Huntington asked. The answer is no, it would not be America. It would be Quebec, Mexico, or Brazil. Democrats must find a middle path on immigration. They can battle Trump's drastic solutions, but still speak in the language of national unity and identity. The country's motto, after all, is out of many, one, not the other way around. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Eleven years ago, a movie was released that woke many people up to the fact that the earth was warming and humans were to blame. The film was called An Inconvenient Truth, and its star was the former vice president, Al Gore. Gore, who had been shouting from the rooftops about climate change for decades, was finally getting heard. The film was awarded the Oscar for Best Documentary, and Gore himself won the Nobel Peace Prize the following year. Now Gore and the filmmakers are back with a sequel, An Inconvenient Sequel. Truths to Power was released nationwide on Friday, just two months after President Trump announced America's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. This week, I talked to Gore at an event hosted by the think tank New America, and he begins here by talking about the state of the climate right now. Ladies and gentlemen. Here in the U.S., in just the last seven years, we have had 11 once-in-a-thousand-year events. Uh, and they're now fairly uh, commonplace. In one year last year, Houston, Texas had two one in 500 year events and one once in a thousand year event. And the increase in air temperatures, India just said it's all time uh, high temperature record. Uh, the hottest year ever measured uh, globally was last year, the second hottest the year before, the third hottest the year before that. 16 of the 17 hottest have been in the last 17 years. Uh, and every night on the TV news is like a nature hike through the book of Revelation. Uh, and though the scientists have long connected the dots, the carbon polluters have mounted this lavishly funded rear guard action to pretend there's still a debate. But again, Mother Nature is piercing that uh, veil and convincing people that whether they want to use the terms global warming or climate crisis or not, they can see for themselves with the evidence of their own senses that 
things are, are, are really changing for the worse. What are we seeing when we, we watch that very dramatic Greenland um, uh, footage? In April of this year, the temperature over Greenland was much higher than normal. An engineer on one of the helicopters took a video during this temperature spike. Those are parts of the glacier just exploding with the high temperatures. What exactly are we watching and why is it so important? Well, the land-based ice on, on Greenland would, if it all melted, raise sea level world, worldwide about 20 feet. Uh, the most threatened cities in the world by population are Kolkata, Mumbai, Guangzhou. You can go down the list, many of them in Asia and South Asia. By assets at risk, the number one city in the world at risk is Miami. Uh, I saw fish from the ocean swimming in the streets of Miami Beach on a sunny day simply because it was a, a high, high tide. Kind of hard to pump the ocean. Bangladesh, of course, has tens of millions of people in the low-lying delta areas. Uh, some of them got used to rebuilding their lives uh, every 20 years. Now it's once every six or seven years. And so the climate uh, refugees moving northward have caused India to complete the largest steel fence in the world on their southern border uh, uh, with Bangladesh. Um, and, and the migrants from the hard-hit drought areas, climate-related droughts, particularly in the eastern Mediterranean, but in large regions of the Middle East and North Africa. Right now, according to the United Nations, 20 million people are at risk of starvation, uh, the largest humanitarian catastrophe since 1945, according to the UN. Uh, in Iran, a couple of years ago, one of their cities had a heat index, the combination of heat and uh, humidity of uh, 74 degrees Celsius, 165 degrees Fahrenheit. And no human being can live for more than five or six hours outdoors in those conditions. Do you think that when you look at the future, um, you are able to maintain your optimism given the kind of pretty bleak picture of what you're describing happening right now, and the reality that a large amount of this, this pollutant uh, is already up there? Um, well, nothing compared to what would be up there if we if we don't stop it now, if we don't cut way back on it. There was a famous economist who you may have known, uh, Rudy Dornbush, uh, who once said, things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen much faster than you thought they could. We've seen that with these technology deployment curves. A decade ago, when my first movie came out, the the solar deployment curve had a long, flat line that was just beginning to slope upward. Now it has shot way up. The same thing happened with cell phones. The same thing has happened with other technologies. That pattern also describes some political and social revolutions. I grew up in the South uh, when the Civil Rights Movement was gaining momentum. Uh, believe me, the, the resistance to civil rights was at least as ferocious as the resistance to the climate movement and solving the climate crisis. In the anti-apartheid movement, Nelson Mandela once said, it's always impossible until it's done. Uh, and we are right at that tipping point where the climate movement is concerned. And the agreement 18 months ago in Paris was a truly historic breakthrough. Virtually every country in the world agreed to go to net zero global warming pollution by mid-century or as soon thereafter as possible. Since the Paris Agreement, 
We've seen that powerful signal sent to investors, to industry, to business. Uh, India, again, just announced two months ago that in only 13 years, 100% of their new cars and trucks are going to have to be electric vehicles. That's faster than what the United States uh, is doing. Uh, and and we're, we're seeing dramatic changes like that, driven by economics and driven by the awareness dawning on millions more people every, every day that this is for real. And we have an obligation to our kids and to ourselves because it's beginning to affect us. This city, here in New York City, in the first movie, the single most controversial scene, perhaps, was the prediction from the scientists that the World Trade 9-11 Memorial Center would be flooded by the ocean water with a combination of sea level rise and storm surge. And they said that's ridiculous. But when Superstorm Sandy came from the Atlantic, it crossed ocean waters that were nine degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal. And it became very powerful, very broad, filled with moisture and the World Trade Center site flooded many years ahead of pr uh, predictions. So those were Gore's thoughts about the Earth's climate. What does he have to say about the political climate in America today? He doesn't hold back there either when we come back. ...and corruption. There are a lot of people who look at the Trump administration and say, you know, nothing is getting done, there's incompetence, there's chaos, but it has withdrawn from the Paris uh, a climate agreement. Uh, Scott Pruitt, the uh, the, the energy uh, um, EPA, uh, yeah. the EPA administrator, has said that he intends to roll back as many of the Obama era regulations yeah. as he can. Um, we don't quite know what the Department of Energy will, is doing, but apparently they are also making efforts. Hmm. How significant is this rollback that is taking place under the Trump administration? Does it worry <clears throat> you? Yes, it does. Um, some of it is being stopped by the Congress. The so-called methane rule is defeated uh, in, in the Senate. Uh, states are countermanding uh, a lot of this, and local governments are as well. Uh, but they're trying to codify some of these uh, destructive changes to eliminate environmental regulations. So Pruitt just announced that he wants to lift the rule preventing mercury and other That's pollution right. in waterways that feed drinking water supplies. It, uh, it's really almost uh, incomprehensible. But here is the good news, Fareed. There is a, a law of physics that often operates in politics as well. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. In, re in reaction to Trump and his uh, cadre of uh, rogues gallery of <laughs> climate deniers, there is a reaction now that is producing the greatest upsurge in, in climate activism and activism for better health care and so forth that, that I've ever seen. And, and we're seeing all over the country mayors uh, step up and say, no, we're still in the Paris Agreement. When, in the president's speech withdrawing from Paris, he said he was the president of uh, Pittsburgh, not Paris. The next day, the mayor of Pittsburgh said, no, we're still in the Paris Agreement and announced a goal of going to 100 percent renewable energy. What do you make of the of the chaos in the White House? Have you ever seen anything like this? Never. Never. And from my point of view, the worst of it is that it's producing constant distractions from the big tasks that we have before us. And of course, the biggest of all is uh, solving the climate crisis. Look, this is, this is for real. 
This is for real. It, were we not to take a hold of it and solve it, 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 it the consequences would be too ca catastrophic to, to even uh, imagine. You were a politician for many, many years. It feels like American politics is broken. It's so polarized, but also so dysfunctional. Mm. Nothing gets done. What, when you look at it and you think about your time in, in American politics, what do you think has happened? Well, I think that our democracy has been hacked uh, by big money long before Putin uh, hacked our democracy. Uh, and I think the change is connected to a dramatic transformation in the last third of the 20th century in the nature of the information ecosystem in which our democracy uh, lives. In the last third of the 20th century, television eclipsed the printing press, gaining more adherence uh, in the early 1960s and then by the middle 70s it was so thoroughly dominant that politicians had to begin devoting the majority of their time to begging special interests for money so they could buy the the 30-second TV commercials. And, you know, these 30-second television ads are, are not the Federalist Papers. They're emotion-based, hot-button appeals, most of them negative. And it has really uh, had a destructive effect on America's political culture and on the operations of our democracy. Now, there is a, another transition now underway toward uh, internet-based media and social media. Um, this year, for the first time, aggregate advertising revenue on the internet surpassed uh, advertising revenue on television in the broadcast satellite cable forums. The big advertisers still prefer television, but that too is beginning to change. So you think social media might provide a way out I of do. this bind? I do. Uh, one of the reasons why the Republican health care legislation failed. Of course, we credit uh, John uh, McCain uh, uh, and uh, uh, Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski. Okay, fine. Uh, but I think the real reason that failed was bad legislation by my lights, but the real reason it failed was that there was a popular uprising. And it was a complicated set of issues. But these groups that organized on the Internet and then, crucially, met up together physically, <laughs> and you have to have clicks and bricks, as they say in the business world. You, have to, you can connect with people on the Internet, but you have to have that physical contact where people form the deeper, longer-lasting ties. They moved the political sentiment in this country to the point where it was political suicide to vote for that legislation. So using this uh, extraordinary new um, social media and uh, appealing to people on the basis of this, the most pressing issue that you believe faces the world in the United States, wouldn't it make sense for you to run for president? <laughs> well, I'm a recovering politician. Uh, and the longer I go without a relapse, the less likely one becomes. But surely you must think you're, you're spending your life trying to make these, to have this impact. Um, You'd have more impact as president of the United States. You're pressing your argument. I, I'm flattered. Thank you. Uh, but I'm doing what it feels to me uh, that I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to have found a way to serve the public interest outside of the political system. Al Gore, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, opened Friday around the U.S. Now. 
I have another documentary to tell you about, mine, my latest special, Why Trump Won, will premiere on Monday at 9 p.m. It's my account of all the signs that all of us missed, including me, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. Don't miss it, and we'll be back in a moment. That's as fake news. Fake news peddlers. You are fake news. Well, here's the real bad news. You ain't seen nothing yet. A big data analysis of online media released this summer by three communications professors shows that the production of fake news articles has been rapidly growing. Now, to be clear, fake news is not news you don't like. It is content that is intentionally created to mislead the public and is untrue. And the researchers come to a chilling conclusion. When news organizations take the time to fact-check fake stories, they just draw more attention to them. The authors argue that rebutting fake news doesn't work and newsrooms could better use their resources covering other more important real news stories. But it gets worse. If we can't always believe what we read online, at least we can still believe what we see, right? Wrong. In July, three computer researchers working at the University of Washington used artificial intelligence to generate a fake video of former President Barack Obama. The researchers processed 17 hours of high-definition footage of Obama's actual presidential addresses and created this remarkably photorealistic video. The words are Obama's, but can you tell which of these four videos is fake? The results are clear. America's businesses have created 14.5 million new jobs over 75 straight months. Actually, all of them are fake. Back in 2016, another group of researchers created a powerful algorithm which allows actors to create real-time facial reenactments of any public figure. Their stated goal was to create fake videos in a photorealistic fashion such that it is virtually impossible to notice the manipulations. The results are striking. Here's George W. Bush, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump. In these examples, actors make facial gestures which are animated in real time with results that are almost seamless. What this all means is that we are rapidly that, approaching the point where a public figure could be made to, to say anything. Most of us don't get our health care through the marketplace. The ability to create fully convincing fake videos brings up some important questions for consumers of news. On the plus side, I suppose it could lead to a healthy suspicion about all the media we see, which until now we've taken for granted. But let's be clear, it will soon become so easy to make a fake video that there may always be some doubt on all videos, even authentic ones. As Business Insider notes, even if a video isn't fake, a politician caught in a lie or, say, on an Access Hollywood bus making obscene statements could make the argument he is a victim of a fake video. Grab him by the I could do anything. There are some technical solutions being floated, including adding digital watermarks on videos to track the true origin of the media. But ultimately, I hope that this makes the public more aware that the credibility of the source matters that media organizations like CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post that have standards and checks perform a crucial public role as gatekeepers sorting through facts and fakes. In the meantime, you'll need to be ever more wary of that article your crazy uncle sent you or that video your college roommate posted on Facebook.
Up next, what happened in the rest of the world this week? We'll be back in a moment to discuss with a terrific panel. And Julia Yoffe is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Dan, I've got to start with you. You are better plugged into the congressional uh, Republicans than yeah. almost anyone. Um, look at all the things that have happened, and it does feel as though you are beginning to see a Republican revolt. That is, senators and congressmen, particularly senators, feeling they can defy Trump and not pay a price. Yeah, I mean, you see it in legislation. So the sanctions bill that was primarily focused on Russia was extraordinary. I mean, for years, Congress has been passing sanctions bills, but they always give the president, I mean, going back 40 years, really, they give the president some flexibility, some sort of presidential waiver, because he's in charge of implementing foreign policy, and you want to give the president flexibility to, you know, waive the sanctions or pull back from the sanctions. What the congressional Republicans said is, we don't trust you, President Trump, to actually make that decision to run your own foreign policy with Russia. So they, if the sanctions want to be, if, if the president wants to lift the sanctions, he has to go back to Congress. It's in the legislation. Nothing like this has ever been passed before that kind of constraint. President Trump, you know, started to talk about Jeff Sessions over the last 10 days and how he should go. The Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Charles Grassley, put out a tweet, said, if you get rid of Sessions, there's going to be no confirmation hearing for a new attorney general. There's the Intelligence Committee hearings, I mean, uh, investigation. There's the Judiciary Committee investigation. They have the president's son in conversation with the committee under threat of subpoena. This is six months into the presidency. This is the party that is in power in the White House, and they're putting these kinds of constraints on the president. So rhetorically, Republicans have not been out front as much as I would like them to be over the last few months in terms of calling out Trump. But if you look at what they've done legislatively and structurally, they... There's a real sense that they're boxing him in. But he's going to West Virginia to remind people, I, I still have my base. Right, and his, he, he and a number of people around him believe he's more in touch and more connected with the base of the Republican Party are, the base of the Republican Party than members of Congress. Is that changing? I think that's changing. Just you see it in the approval ratings going down. I still think he has a deep bond with these voters, but I, I think that's sustainable only for so long. And again, as these numbers come down, I think Republicans are feeling more and more comfortable challenging him. When you look at the Russia policy at this point, um, does the United States have a Russia policy? Because it does feel like it's totally paralyzed. Trump is boxed in. A, a bunch of congressional hawks are running the policy with the Democrats gleefully joining in simply to constrain Trump. Well, but then you have Secretary of State Rex Tillerson saying that he's not going to tap the congressionally allocated funds to counter Russian and ISIS propaganda. He's, uh, he wants to scrub democracy promotion from the State Department's message, which is great for Russia. That, that kind of stuff has always been a major irritant for Russia. They believe that democracy promotion is just a fig leaf for regime change, which they've always been afraid of. So it just feels like it's people fighting over the wheel and there's no one policy on anything. It depends who in the administration you talk to on North Korea, on Iran, on Russia, on any given day of the week. On North Korea, for example, Tillerson said something remarkable. For the first time I can recall since the Clinton administration, he said, we're not trying to depose the regime. We don't want regime change. We want to talk to you. Uh, we're just interested in your nuclear weapons. But then two weeks ago, you had CIA Director Mike Pompeo at the Aspen Security Forum saying that regime change was on the table. So yeah, I, I don't know. And, and it's certainly, you know, there's not a policy message coming from the commander in chief. I don't think he, again, it's what, who's the last person to talk to him and to convince him of a certain position. 
Russia policy? What do you think? Well, this is a very strange period in American foreign policy history because you have an administration at the top that's essentially like a pirate crew that's come in, a skeleton crew running uh, a big booty ship, uh, a big prize ship that they've taken over, but the ship is going in a certain direction and they want to reverse course, but they can't control the ship because they don't have enough people. So the pirate captain at the top in the White House is sort of sitting there raging, saying, we're going to do this, and the rest of the ship's crew is either sitting around stalling or going in the same direction. So you have Trump in the White House or and drinking. the government. There is, the American foreign policy is going on in autopilot regardless of the White House. That's what Mattis and McMaster to some extent and uh, uh, Tillerson are trying to do. But Trump is up there talking. The question is there's no, it's like the dollar bill. There's a little eye at the top of the pyramid, but it's not connected to the actual thing. History is gonna look at this period and say, there was a weird time when Trump was in charge in the White House, but then there was American foreign policy before and after, and there's gonna be no continuity the, the across. Right is going after McMaster. Right, which uh, is... National Security Advisor. Yeah, it is, um, it, it's amazing that he has now become the focus. Everyone over the last few days said John Kelly's first test was Scaramucci. What's he, what's he going to do about Scaramucci? That wasn't his first test. His first test is McMaster, because he and McMaster are very close. He, he knows, no, John Kelly knows that McMaster is eminently qualified for this position. And the idea that he is being attacked from within, and make no mistake about it, what is going on right now, the sort of social media campaign against McMaster is being ginned up by people very close to certain power centers in the White House. Steve Bannon. Yes, and, McMa and, and Kelly's challenge is going to be, it's one thing to take on Scaramucci, it's another thing to take on Steve Bannon. And, and this, this tension between the two, is, as, I, as I think, is ex extremely important to get sorted and get sorted quickly, because if it doesn't, it's going to be a huge blow to Kelly. Quickly, Venezuela seems to be imploding. Is there anything, any lesson to be learned from that? Venezuela is what happens when you have Donald Trump without James Madison, right? When you have an authoritarian demagogue by personality, but no constitutional structures keeping him in place. So we should all be thanking the founders for the system they set up, which is proven. Ingenious. It is proven to be so amazing. If men were angels, you wouldn't need a system like this, but we know men aren't angels, and that's why we have the system we have. That, it's of course, been six just, months. So no one thinks that is not a Gideon Rose quote. That is actually James Madison, Federalist Papers. Um, Donald Trump asked in West Virginia if there were any Russians over there. Well, I'm going to ask that same question because Julia Yaffe came to America from Russia. So we actually have a Russian in the house and we're going to talk about Russia, but also immigration, the new immigration plan when we get back. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. Well, it's, it's kind of more of the same and slightly different packaging. It's the same thing that he's been promising to his base since he started running two years ago. It's very restrictive in you know one shape or another immigration policy they've been going after green cards and h1b visas also since the beginning because of people like steve bannon and stephen miller it's interesting because melania trump was here originally on an h1b visa in fact she worked illegally under a um, tourist visa at first but that doesn't seem to matter and when you ask trump supporters they don't care because she's a different she's the right kind of immigrant she's a beautiful white woman from europe and and we like those, even though she doesn't have a college degree. You know, I don't know how she would have done under this point system. But I think a lot of this stuff is trying to find um, kind of a, 
a formula that would pr will provide the right kind of uh, demographic engineering for this, um, for this base. You know, Gideon, what strikes me about it is nobody, I think, would object to a shift in the, in the composition uh, of immigration that is more skills-based, less family unification. It's probably too lopsided. But this is achieved by dramatically cutting back on immigration at a time when everybody thinks that the great advantage the United States has compared to Europe, for example, compared to Japan, is we have young workers. And the reason we have young workers is because we have immigrants. Yeah, you can make a good case, actually. Canada has a very successful immigration policy that's based on somewhat different principles than family reunification for the main thing. You can make a case there's a good policy reason for considering alternate ways of structuring your intake of immigrants. But reducing them dramatically uh, for the legal immigrants is a different question from the illegal immigrants, and it's one that doesn't seem geared towards a successful economic future and dynamic, thriving future for the country. On the other hand, politically, as your column points out, it might actually make some sense. It's also, I have to say, there's a moral question here because part of this proposal, like all past proposals or executive actions, drastically cuts down on the number of refugees, yeah. which, is, which is, I would argue, immoral and cruel, especially if you're pursuing a kind of isolationist foreign policy and you're not going out into the world and trying to help these countries fix the situations they're in so that they're not creating this, these massive well, refugees. I've got to just flows. mention your tweet, which I loved, which was you said, when I came to this country, I couldn't speak English. Now I get paid to write it. Right, but that, that was one of the proposed qualifications, right? That if you come to this country as an immigrant, you have to speak English. English is a pretty lang easy language to learn. I think most people could pick it up in a few months. You think we're actually seeing a lot more bipartisanship than people realize it's, in Congress. It's extraordinary. I mean, on policy matters, with the exception of the Russia sanctions bill, on policy matters, there's fierce partisanship. But on constraining the Trump administration, there's incredible bipartisanship like we've never seen before. The idea that the chairman, the Republican chairman and the Democratic ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, of the Judiciary Committee, are locking arms and they're bringing up Comey to testify and they're bringing up different officials from the administration to have conversations about isolating the president. Uh, it's, you know, McConnell and, and Paul Ryan could shut these investigations down tomorrow if they wanted to. They're not. They're working closely with Schumer and Pelosi and Hoyer on these. Uh, I think it's it's encouraging. The system's working. Are you encouraged? I'm going, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. I think we're starting to see some of it, but a lot of this conversation, I think, is, to me, redolent of 2016, of, of uh, you know, Paul Ryan saying, this is textbook racism, but, or I'm, I don't endorse him, but I'll vote for him. So, a lot, you know, it only, uh, the only reason that the health, Senate health care bill didn't pass was only three Republicans peeled off. That's not a lot for a bill that was, you know, scored to show that it was actually quite a cruel bill, would deprive a lot of people of health insurance that already have it, um, despite its lack of popularity. Only three Republicans peeled off. Can so can, we're seeing, quick, we're seeing quick, some yeah. of it. Hold on. We're seeing some of it, and it's encouraging. Um, but I don't know how, you know, how it's going to continue playing out, especially if, you know, the Republican Party became very anti-establishment in 2016, and then here they have the establishment locking down the guy who's anti-establishment. How is that going to play with the base? Every effort President Trump has made to impede these investigations of him have backfired. Every single thing he's done. And it's largely because Republican leaders in Congress have been a check on him. I mean, that's more, yeah, that's, no, that's something. That's yeah. good.
So, clock. so the clock started ticking when Mueller was appointed. Trump is a big tree. Robert Mueller and his team are a small axe sharpened to cut him down, and that's what's going to happen over time. Next on GPS, an American red state is taking lessons from a so-called socialist Scandinavian country. I will explain in a moment. ...was first tested on July 16, 1945, in the New Mexican desert. This brings me to my question. When did the United States last test a nuclear weapon? 1962, 1983, 1992, or 2003? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. I don't have a book of the week today because I want to tell you about my latest documentary, Why Trump Won. It will premiere right here on Monday night at 9 p.m., on CNN and CNN International. Trump's victory shocked the world, including me. So how did we all miss the signals? They underestimated. It Donald is Trump. a collective the failure. Most unbelievable thing that the media of us were dead wrong. The numbers wrong. We didn't see this coming. How did he win? That's what I dig into on Monday night, 9 p.m. in Why Trump Won. And now for the last look. Prison cells like dorm rooms. Guards happily chatting with inmates. Prisoners wearing civilian clothes. No, this is not some Scandinavian fantasy prison. It is right here in the United States, in North Dakota. This is the Missouri River Correctional Center, a fenceless minimum security prison near Bismarck, North Dakota, known as The Farm. In fact, all three of the states-run prisons are experimenting with similar strategies to improve outcomes for all while also improving quality of life. As Mother Jones reported, the number of inmates in solitary confinement is down by two-thirds. And with that decrease, inmate violence has dropped. The Dakotans were inspired by Scandinavia, Norway in fact, which is known for the most humane prisons in the world. Looking for a way to slow the growth of their prison population and de-emphasize solitary confinement, a group of North Dakotan prison officials visited Halden, Norway's open-air maximum security prison in 2015, and incorporated many of its features and philosophies. Here at GPS, we often look to other nations for solutions to crises, from gun control to education. Indeed, loyal viewers may remember our segment on the very same Halden prison in Norway in 2015. Maybe North Dakota, a state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, will end up showing the president and all of us a way to really make America great again. The correct answer to my GPS challenge question is C. The U.S. last conducted a nuclear weapons test in September 1992 at an underground site in Nevada. The United States had performed over 1,000 nuclear tests, while the Soviet Union performed more than 700 since its first one in 1949. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and all around the world. This is Reliable Sources, our weekly look at the story behind the story of how the media really works and how the news gets made. Several developing stories right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.